0: I believe in those who know their neighborhoods and own the streets they walk on because while you do that, you can contradict yourself from one street corner to the other without being cynical, with a lot of honesty. You have to know your territory. You have to work from within because you can take positions that no one can take.
1: Welcome to Archinect Sessions, one-to-one. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm talking with architect Bernard Corey. Corey came to the U.S. from Lebanon to study architecture at RISD and Harvard, then returned to establish his practice in Beirut in the mid-1990s. His father was a prominent modernist architect, practicing during Beirut's booming pre-Civil War years, and much of Corey's work somehow engages with Lebanon's post-war urbanity. We spoke about his time at Harvard, studying war architecture with Levius Woods, and how his practice is a constant re-evaluation of how architecture can reflect upon, and come to terms with, the traumas of war. So Bernard, Corey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I wanted to start out the conversation by asking you to kind of maybe dig back a little bit in your memory bank and tell me what it was like when you first came to study architecture at the Rhode Island School of Design in the late 1980s, while back in Lebanon, a civil war was going on.
0: Uh, a lot of drinking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> out of sorrow or out of uh, natural collegiate? Activity.
0: Out of a lot of natural things. No, I had a good time at RISD, it was, um, it was a good program. RISD was going downhill, maybe according to certain people, but, but I think uh, we had a good time. I went through the whole cursus, I, I went through the freshman year, uh, so I did five full years there, and then I continued uh, straight to GSD. I didn't take a break. And one of the reasons I did that was because I wasn't really sure where was home at that point. I didn't want to settle anywhere.
1: Right. So you you came to another country to study without necessarily a specific plan as to that you would return to start a practice where you came from or stay in the U.S., but you were just kind of feeling it out.
0: Uh, it wasn't very clear. It wasn't very clear at the end either, because um, for a period of three years, four years after I graduated, I, I kept a foot in the U.S. So I was going back and forth, very undecided as to uh, where was home, until I realized there was no home for me.
1: But um, w- Was that a liberating realization or, or a terrifying one?
0: Both, I think. Mm-hmm. Delightfully sour.
1: Mm-hmm. I bet there's a better word for that that English just doesn't have. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like then when you first then did go back to Lebanon? Uh,
0: lots of hopes. Uh, I was one of those naive uh, soldiers who thought that I could take part in, uh, in a great reconstruction project. And I don't mean uh, the reconstruction of buildings we thought that there was a project in the works uh, the rebuilding of a nation that obviously did not happen and after a while uh, i started understanding the mechanisms of survival here and uh, it was time for plan for plan b so between the time i arrived and the time i actually started building things had changed at least at least for me
1: so the plan b what exactly was that
0: well, the plan B was to understand that there was no uh, reconstruction project in the, in the conventional sense of the term. The state, uh, in the absence of a state being rebuilt, the institutions being completely corrupt, incompetent and bankrupt. There were no museums, no competitions, no public debate around public space, no common history being formulated, no collective effort in terms of uh, even um, formulating some kind of memory. Uh, it was, uh, it was very strange. To me, there was no post-war period. I think the war did not end with the Taif Accords in 89, 90, And it did not start, in fact, in 1975. Things were, in fact, far more complex than that.
1: So I'd like you to talk, or based on what you just said, I'd like you to relate that to one of your projects, the Subterranean Club, Nightclub, mm-hmm. that you worked on. I think that's kind of a, perf- or to me, the evolution and what I do know about that club does speak to what you're referring to, is this difficulty of, not just literally rebuilding after the war, but in fact, establishing any type of cohesion in society and having a place for people to vent and relax and socialize, but also to discuss these kinds of post-war ideas.
0: Well, this, we, we're, already back, we're already in 1998. I'd like to rewind back to the early 90s, when I was still in, in my academic cocoon. My first project that tackled Beirut was something I've worked on with Levius Woods back at the GSD, and it was a project called Evolving Scars. And the exercise, what we tried to do, was to try to turn the demolition of the war-torn buildings into an architectural act in an effort to build another kind of memory during the scarring period. That was very politically naive because I thought at the time that it it would be possible to work on on a collective memory. Obviously, coming to Beirut three, four, five years and a lot of aborted projects, and understanding how things worked here, brought me to the plan B, which was to change strategies, stop waiting for uh, the great noble projects that would never come around, and, uh, and start from the bottom, the bottom being the entertainment industry. So I did not, I did not build uh, post-war memorials or serious projects in the sense that the programs I tackled, well, at least my first buildings, were, I describe as sort of vulgar commissions in the sense that I catered for the entertainment industry. I I designed places of debauchery. Uh, I did not, and and these were not politically accountable in the sense that they were not at the outset political projects. When you design a museum, and when you design a building for the public sector, you have a certain level of accountability. I mean, uh, on the political level. It turns out when this territory does not exist, And uh, you start from the bottom, you work on temporary buildings, which is what I did. The first six buildings I built were temporary structures, meaning they had a very limited lifespan. I knew at what date they were going to be demolished, even prior to designing them initially. So when you work on temporary buildings and you work for the entertainment industry, it is kind of liberating because you're not accountable politically. So you can start taking positions and you can take postures that you would not take if you're building uh, permanent buildings and if you're building serious commissions. So that's how it all started. I started building nightclubs, but I did it very seriously, I like to think, with a certain level of pleasure, of course, but but it wasn't as frivolous as people may think.
1: Well, what kind of... Than ideals were you trying to imbue in those spaces with having this attention towards both understanding that if the people who are going to be using this are the
0: interesting thing about about the entertainment industry and particularly these projects and my association to uh, my, my collaboration with also the people who were who made this project possible because i was not alone on this i think uh, you have to have a smart client someone who's willing to uh, who has the courage to, uh, to question things in a critical manner. So I don't think there was an ideal I was projecting through my projects. There was absolutely no certainty in any of those projects, no certainty formulated. In fact, there's a lot of worry in these projects, associated to a lot of pleasure, of course, but I don't, uh, I don't see these projects as idealistic projects. They are projects that try to reformulate the context, a very specific context, and not a consensual definition of the context but one that is very engaged in the very specificity of the situation itself that I'm tackling. And there you can go very far because you're liberated also from this from this complex we have with context us architects. We always want to be contextual, but but the term context sometimes becomes also very Consensual and dangerously consensual, in the sense that it ends up formulating dangerously dangerous simplifications of history and dangerous simplifications of context. For me, context uh, is when you're liberated from that and you and you can engage with the very specific situation and not try to engage the context uh, in, a, in a sort of a broader as a broader territory.
1: So it sounds like there are time when you spoke before of the kind of naive project initiated with Levius Woods at the GSD. Would you say that those kinds of academic environments are somewhat implicit in creating that simplified consensus?
0: Oh, definitely, yes. I think people who spend too much time at school end up uh, being completely disconnected from those marvelously sour realities that uh, I have learned to enjoy.
1: So what was it about at the GST at that time? Was there other work going on, uh, paying attention to the similar themes that you were interested in, or was the work that you did with Levius kind
0: of... Lebius was a a fantastic man, and I have great memories of the time I spent with him. I enjoyed every second with him. He was a a, a very exceptional character. But besides that, no, I think uh, there was a lot of stupidity happening at GST. (laughs) Uh, It was a country club.
1: Well, I think that that criticism can certainly be leveraged at many of the similar Ivy League schools at at really any point. I
0: mean, mean, schools in general, no harm. Mm -hmm. At at Harvard, it's a very Mm -hmm. serious institution. but. I do keep a foot in in schools every now and then, but architecture, somehow the academy has become extremely apolitical. And I think the architectural world has become completely disconnected from what I think is political. I don't think architecture produces any meaning on that level, unfortunately.
1: Mm. So what would that be? What would be the prime political platform for architects to be engaged with? Or not necessarily platform, but concept?
0: Not architecture, no. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you just stay es- out
0: es- escape, escape the practice and try to explore other territories. I was called a gadgetist at school because I was very proud of describing my work not as not as architecture but as instruments. you know And I would always start I would always start by by my projects were very narrative at the beginning uh, and, I, and, and I resisted the act of drawing, which was a problem with Levius, but I think he had the sensitivity to respect that. In fact, I spent three and a half months with Lebius Woods. I did not produce a drawing until probably two weeks before the end. Huh. And that was fantastic. We had we had endless conversations. And two weeks before the semester ended, he told me, Bernard, don't design the project. Just don't even come to the final pinup. Because the conversations we had had were, were so constructive and were so were so interesting. He was working on Zagreb at the time. I did not know that he published uh, he had a small publication. So the issue of and Architecture was very dear to him. And um, so we shared a lot of those worries. And um, and then when he was gone, I developed this project solo on two weeks, for two weeks. Evolving Scars is a project I still present to this day, you know, sometimes in lectures, some 25 or whatever years later. I think I produced it in 91, so that's 25 years ago.
1: Hmm. So from these reflections on kind of the state of the academic context for architecture, I noticed that you were slated to teach a course at the GSD this spring, but I believe it was canceled. Is that correct? Yes, correct. So have you had other teaching experience at the GSD at this time?
0: No, I have never taught at the GSD. I've lectured there a few times, but I, I was giving a studio there that uh, I think would have been very interesting, but I think maybe a bit too political for for the audience or the students.
1: Well, I'd like you to speak about that that as of yet unrealized studio, because I think that as what I've understood about it in this engagement with political atmospheres and particularly in the Arab world, um, we last week just had Amal Andraus on the podcast and mm-hmm. there was no specific intent in scheduling these two um, close to one another. But um, you also recently contributed to her book, The Arab City.
0: I did not know that. I think we did we did a, we did a dialogue together. I don't think it was for her book. I might be wrong. I don't know.
1: Well, the book—the book is a series of, of a compilation of oh, okay. research okay. And, and things okay. from past. So you you are credited in it, but I've but I yeah, it might not have been a thing that is particularly. Well, Amal
0: is Amal is a very dear friend and a very old friend. Before she was even an architect, so we have a, a relationship that dates way before uh, she even went to college. We, she's a great person, and I appreciate her before even considering her as an architect.
1: Well, we spoke to her, when, when I spoke to her for the last week's episode, she had been explaining the context of this book that she recently put out as really the, not the culmination, but at least a benchmark in a lot of research and a lot of discussion mm-hmm. around the Ar- the Arab world and quote-unquote the Arab city as a kind of mm-hmm. unfairly pigeonholed concept or mm-hmm. stereotype. And in her conversation, it sounded like there had been a lot of discussion at, at Columbia's GSAP around these issues and, and that they had been evolving really since in the last you know, time what, that she was there, so at least the last five or 10 years or so. But I'm wondering if whether or not you see these kinds of conversations just generally taking up Arab cities as a very you know, fraught concept in the academic sense. But is that something that you feel that architecture schools are giving the appropriate attention to?
0: I think Colombia is trying. It's trying very hard. And I think that's good. And I think Amal is doing a lot on that front. Uh, we crossed, uh, I think, in, in Amman not long ago I think so the around, Studio uh, X, yeah, around Studio X. Um, so Anamal is very uh, engaged, but I'm not very really aware of what of what's happening in schools very much, you know. I come in and out. Uh, I do I do crits sometimes, and I teach every once in a while, every couple of years. I just did a, a thing at Otis. It's one week, uh, very dense workshop. Be doing the one in Turkey and another one in Italy before the end of the year. But I usually don't do that often.
1: Hmm. So to branch out from the academic world you've also engaged with this with these ideas in the last uh, Venice Biennale in the kingdom of Bahrain's pavilion um, with the under Rem Koolhaas's fundamentals and your spin or perhaps not your personally but you, the pavilion's spin on um, that theme was fundamentalists and other urban models and I'm wondering if you can give kind of a brief explanation of of what the p- pavilion entailed and kind of what the kind of ideas around Arab cities you were trying to discuss.
0: What I try to do is to, is to establish a, a clear, in fact, a very obvious relationship between the notion of the nation state and, and, and modernity and modernism, if anything, in the Arab world. And it was interesting, the span between 1914 and 2014. 1914 is the beginning of World War I, at the end of which uh, these states are literally plotted on the map by the colonial powers who bring with them the notion of the nation and help building the state institutions and major infrastructure projects. And we have very much associated modernity to the colonies that brought, in fact, the notion of the state and structured these states, if anything. Our constitutions and our laws are very much uh, inspired and or, 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 or influenced by the colonies who helped put them together. And we, we've had, uh, I would call them the glorious 30 or 40 years, depending on which city, which country you look at, during which Many of those cities, like Cairo, Baghdad, uh, Beirut, Damascus, not only in architecture, but in other creative fields, had their take on modernity, huh? whether it's cinema, music, all other creative fields. Beirut, at some point, aspired at being a, a very modern city. Whether it failed uh, its modern project or not, to me is not uh, just a question that, that stops, starts and stops with architecture, but you will see that with the beginning of the failure of the state, and the state institutions for Lebanon, it became very obvious by the early mid '70s. For other countries, it was a bit before, a bit after the rise of, of despotism and and um, and uh, dictatorships. Uh, and then you see you see the notion of the state uh, completely collapsing and going bankrupt, and with it the modern project going down the drain. And you can read that on the facades of the buildings in those cities. So there was a very obvious parallel between modernism and the notion of nation state. And most of the early modern projects in our part of the world, even the first and second generation of moderns, of which my father was, I would consider, part of the first or second generation of local modern architects, their commissions, at least in their beginnings, were mostly public buildings. It's interesting to compare my path with that of my dad, for instance. I was never commissioned a public building. I probably never will. I never worked for the public sector. So this says a lot about, uh, you know, it, it all boils down to politics at the end of the day. But the architectural world is completely immune to that. It's very interesting. We got a lot of coverage for our our pavilion, but certainly not for the right reason. There was never a constructive or serious critical debate around the political aspect of our scheme. Instead, I thought, in fact, I was in fact very deceived by the Biennale in general. I, it seemed to me it was a sort of a parade of, uh, of archives, uh, not to say even to a certain level almost a, an autopsy on a dead cadaver, which was modernism, a sort of a uh, pornographic, uh, macabre autopsy of the modern cadaver, where we were just observing what, 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 what parts and, 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 and what it had produced purely from a very limited uh, territory of architecture and completely apolitical. So I think I was a bit off the map and off the radar. I, I was doing something that had nothing to do with what I've seen in other pavilions or the Biennale in general. But then, then again, that's cool. Us, you know.
1: Well, it sounds like that the the Biennale was just not at all. While well, it is praised in so much as the kind of as an apex in architectural discourse, that it is certainly not a place to actually. Constructively discuss these things that you're interested that you that you think are significant, and I would like to then hear whether you think that the current discussion around the upcoming Biennale um, under Alejandra Aravena's directorship mm-hmm. that has a much more explicitly sociopolitical approach than certainly Rem Koolhaas's creation and how that is being almost, while at the same time praised, it is being also almost u- universally derided in the way that people are. Or at least in the mainstream press, it seems that there's a certain mainstream architecture press, I should say, there's a certain criticism towards the architect who believes that these things can be done by architects. And that at the same time, somewhat contradictorily, there's also the belief that they have to want to do this, that to be a good architect, you have to be engaged in these things. There seems to be almost a little bit of a cognitive dissonance around those kinds of so-called social issues depending on, on
0: what we mean by good architecture, uh, but by what I feel, my superficial reading of what we see in the polished pages of our architectural magazines and books, to be a good architect today is to be, is to be wise and cynical. It seems to be the spirit of the times, the wise and the cynical, and the, the least, the very smooth. That seems to be the trend. That's why I don't, I don't re- I'm not really following up on what is happening in the field at this point. I, I don't read architectural magazines. I don't read architectural books. I don't know who's doing what, frankly.
1: <laughs> that sounds very refreshing, and especially in the context of, um, well, of course, I encourage you to read everything on Archonnect, But what,
0: what, what, I, what I worry about doesn't seem to be worrying what my colleagues are tackling or what my colleagues are doing in the more stable parts of the world. I'm not concerned by what concerns them and they're not concerned by what, by what concerns me. It seems to be like that, but that's okay.
1: Do you think it's then fair to kind of continue parading around the idea of the architecture profession when there seems to be such a drastic fracturing in that community of what the actual role of the architect should be and, and what the profession should look like?
0: I believe, in, I believe more and more in, in the local. You know, when I got out of school, uh, I, I had this stupid uh, fantasy of becoming an international architect. And when I see what, what the international architects and what their certainties have produced on my territory, I am beginning to think maybe I should stay and practice in my own neighborhood. I believe in those who know their neighborhoods and own the streets they walk on, because when you do that, you can contradict yourself from one street corner to the other without being cynical, with a lot of honesty. You have to know your territory. You have to work from within, because you can take positions that no one can take while coming with universal certainties from outside. While coming with a supposed curiosity of the territory, we've also seen what this has produced, you know. It doesn't take a five hundred pages book to research a territory to publish it and say, Okay, now I know or I've been curious enough to practice there. It doesn't work because again, I feel they're theoretical postures and theory only can only produce consensual definitions at the end of the day. I believe in the local. I believe in the very, very specific, the extremely specific, obsessively specific approach and re-evaluation of what context means at every single situation.
1: I'd also like you then to speak about your work with DW5. As I understand it, this is an architectural design production company. So you work with a variety of other local architects to help them put together whatever they need to create a project. Is that kind of a fair...
0: That's a fair way of of, of, of describing it. And and it was the initial idea, looking at it like maybe like hospitals do, you know. A lot of mm. doctors can operate in one in one same hospital, but it turns out uh, most of them have run have run away. Maybe it's because <laughs> maybe it's because I painted the floor red. Maybe it's because I ride my bike in the office. Maybe it's because
1: uh, by bike you mean motorcycle?
0: Yes, yes. I ride it to my desk, literally.
1: So you have you can just have a mini motorcycle sized elevator that you can use.
0: No, no, it's a big it's a big freight elevator. I, I can drive the car too.
1: Excellent. So if you needed to, you could do a drive-in architecture studio.
0: Yes, correct.
1: <laughs> so one of the projects that I've that you have on your website that I think is pretty fascinating, and, and I certainly haven't seen any other architect kind of adopting a, anything similar to this, are your drive-by films where you are, as you just described, literally driving your motorcycle from the studio, from your office, to the construction sites of projects that you have around yeah. in Lebanon. And I've watched a few of these videos, and I've been only on a, I I myself have have personally ridden as a passenger on a motorcycle and it, it is a terrifying experience. And at the same time, watching these videos really does convey that. It really gives you this excitement and vicarious experience of actually being on the motorcycle by watching it because the camera is actually mounted on your helmet. So let's first start just like, where did the idea for this come from?
0: I wanted to put my projects in their juice. Of the city. Uh, well, yeah, in, in French we say dans, dans leur rue. I don't know if it translates the same in English, but yes, I, it was very important to understand these projects by linking them literally geographically from my studio to wherever they are. And in some of those videos, I fly up in the crane with my helmet, I walk in the buildings with my helmet, but the approach is very important because you have to understand this building and and that this is as much as I can do in, in a 10-15 sec- minutes unedited film. I'm not a filmmaker. I don't pretend to be. So it was a very, it was a very humble yet very spontaneous way of approaching the building in its physical context, in the violence of the city through the motorcycle and at absurd speeds and sometimes counter traffic. I don't know if you've seen in some of the, in some of the, I mean, I watch them sometimes and I, I don't know if I would do that again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But so what exactly is the value then of you watching them again and having them as an archival process of you after a project is completed and you're looking back at these, what kind of value does it have in that regard?
0: Well, I think you, you, we, we have, I've planned buildings, I've designed them, I've talked about them in certain ways when they were on the drawing board, when they were under the construction and looking back 10 years later, uh, they take on sometimes a completely different meaning. So I think it's important to, to register at some point in time, very specifically at a specific date on a specific route, what it was like, because it certainly won't be the same. If I could do this every day, I'd do it.
1: I think it's a lovely example of what the actual designer's experience, in a way, is with regards to like visiting these projects and, and gradually seeing them progress, while also giving a very visceral piece of media for someone who, is ne- who might never see the place to actually get to experience it yeah. somewhat peripherally.
0: We, we've, in fact, did a, there was an installation that was produced with these 12 videos. I think there were 12 of them a couple of months later in Mexico, where I I sculpted a replica of my helmet in in wood sections in which, uh, and I've placed it in the middle of a room with a circular formation of 12 screens, and the 12 videos were running, looping constantly, and you can wear that helmet that had um, another sound that was produced by uh, a dear friend of mine who's a local musician that was supposedly produced with sounds that he had captured out of these videos. He's a musician, so anyway, You had the sounds produced by the 12 videos, which was a cacophony of the the wind and, you know, these cameras don't capture sound well. And you had the the, the 12 uh, tours, the 12 rides running simultaneously, and you were trapped in the middle of that. It was an interesting thing to work on. So these were, in fact, done also for that. The the videos were, were also produced with that installation in mind.
1: Well, Bernard, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was great to talk with you.
0: You're most welcome.
1: Thanks for listening to ARK connect Sessions 1 to 1 with Bernard Corey. Danilo Voinov edits our podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petruña are the producers of 1 to 1. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter and you can email us at connect at ARK connect dot com. Thanks again for listening to 1 to 1.